Thanks everybody for coming tonight. Um, I'm so glad you could join us. Uh, this event this is Sunday with the Department of the Communities Council and the building of the National Humanities and the LSU Cultural Affairs Committee. I'd like to say a few quick thank yous to Mark, to Teresa, to Allie, uh, Mary Jean, and Marsha. Um, and a big thanks to the people who are some of the chair here in the and Sherry Green. Here's a little bit of about Marty Jolie. She's the author of two memoirs, Bootstrapper, from Broke to Badass, and the Women Chicken Farm. And The German Girl, A Story of Fierce Friendship and Longshine Time Choice. As well as the two kind books with Eagle Hanks and Goodhart, Jason Boy's Secret, and Wicked Hanks and Wicked Stand, which were each part of the best selling. And all these books are for sale on the market. Uh, this is Off of it, but still it was an act. And she said, 
uh, if, if, if we just say bootstrapper with a big red X, they're either going to think you killed someone or someone killed you. So we need a subtitle. And I said, okay, well, um, Kanaf had just published a book called Wild. Maybe you've heard of it. It's a huge bestseller. Reese Witherspoon made a movie. And that has a subtitle, From Lost to Found on the Pacific Crest Trail. And my editor said, don't you just love that rhythm? From Lost to Found on the Pacific Crest Trail. Well, yes, I love that rhythm, but I don't want to be compared to any other writer, even one as terrific as Cheryl's straight. So I said, yeah, I really like it. How about from broke to badass on a northern Michigan farm? And she said, perfect. <laughs> so I like to tell that story to my parents and tell them that's why there's a cuss word on the cover of my book. Um, so tonight I'm going to read a little bit from Bootstrapper and then I'm going to read a new piece. It hasn't been published and I'm still kind of working on it. So you guys are my guinea pig. It's about genealogy. And then I'm going to read a little brief, um, brief piece from the Drummond Girls. And then after that, I'll answer questions. Anything, hopefully. Anything I can answer. So Bootstrapper, like I said, is about, uh, it takes place over one year. And it is about the time, it is about the, um, the year post-divorce when my kids, who were 9, 12, and 14 at the time, that we were just uh, both emotionally and financially trying to get our feet under us. And one of our one of our traditions was to take the kids to the Cherry Festival every year. So this is about whether or not that tradition continued. By 11 the next morning, the boys have finished in the garden, and I've mucked out the horse stall, scattered fresh straw, filled the water tank, and checked the pasture fence. After lunch, I cut the schedule of the day's festival activities out of the newspaper and circle the ones that sound fun to me. These include a tour of the demonstration orchard by a horse pulled wagon, then a walk through a cherry processing plant, live cherry pie judging, then the marching band competition. Maybe I'll even splurge on a pancake breakfast. I show my newspaper circles to the boys. Their initial reaction is silence, then universal protest. Aw, oh, mom! Translation. Marching band music is lame, cherry processing is boring, and cherry glop on pancakes is sickening, Mom, just totally sickening. Why do I try to get them to eat it every year? We want to pick what we do this year, Owen, a.k.a. official spokes team says, not you. When I ask what it is that they do want to do, the earth shifts on its axis, and now there's actually universal agreement. Bumper cars, corn dogs, elephant ears, the zipper, and cotton candy. Northern Michigan, and specifically the Traverse City area where we live, is the largest producer of tart cherries in the country, maybe even the world. And so to me, the Cherry Festival is an annual celebration of local agriculture, an opportunity to talk to farmers, see their orchards in operation, try innovative cherry-infused food, and learn more about our area's proud farming history. I have always just assumed that this was true for my sons as well. Sometime in the past year, and completely unbeknownst to me, a seismic shift has occurred. This jolt has caused my sons to rotate their allegiance from me and from appreciating local agriculture to worshiping deep-fried dough and greasy carnival rides. Debate on this activity begins, and their primary points are these. They are not babies. 
They are not farmers, and I'm mental if I think I can force them back into the former or turn them into the latter, which makes me wonder. After feeding them organic vegetables and teaching them how to grow them, after demonstrating how to stake pole beans and plant tomato seedlings sideways to get a good root system going, after reading them classic literature in the evenings and playing board games with them on rainy days instead of letting them watch TV, are they just turning out like any old boys raised any old way by any old mom? I've got to tell you boys, I'm a little disappointed I lecture from the front seat as we drive into town. What's your, where's your interest in your native region? Where's your support of Michigan agriculture? Because it's just after the 4th of July, I put on a CD of patriotic marching band music and turned up the volume. I hope this little speech will be stirring. That hope and my soundtrack are in vain. I don't want to be all historic and stuff, Mom, the spokes teen says. We're kids, duh. Yeah, duh, his brothers add. I'm the one who made a silent promise to keep all our lives going as normal. If this is the new normal, then so be it, and I offer a compromise. I'll take them to the carnival and give them each $10 for rides and snacks. When that is spent, we'll all go on a wagon ride together through the demonstration orchard. They'll listen politely to the farmers talk during the tour, and we'll each remember one important fact about cherry growing in northern Michigan. Then, they'll share that fact with the rest of us on our drive home. An educational discussion will naturally ensue. Come on, Mom, says Owen. Final offer, I say, take it or leave it. They take it. We arrive at the carnival and a sign on the ticket booth reveals a lucky break. Today is Kids Day. 20 tickets for $10. The rides require three or four tickets each. So if the boys spend all their money on tickets and none on corn dogs, they will have enough for five or six rides. <laughs> Tell you what I say, handing them each a $10 bill. You guys buy your tickets out of this, and I'll get you a snack later at the farmer's market. They agree, and after barely an hour, Owen and Will are out of tickets. But Luke still has all his. He's figured out that he isn't going to be able to go on all the rides. And he can't decide which ones he wants to go on the most. So he hasn't gone on any. Not one. Honey, you have to choose now, I tell him. Your brothers are all out of tickets. Can we just walk around and look one more time, he asks. We walk past the Ferris wheel and the haunted pirate ship, past the potato sack slide, the zipper and the twister, and then Luke leads us over to the games. He eyes an old woman smoking a cigarette and holding a BB gun, standing expressionless underneath a rack of stuffed snakes, looking like some kind of Annie Oakley of the undead. Five tickets, cowboy, she says in a monotone. Five tickets and win this here snake for your girl. Can she not see that Luke is only 12 years old? A slight and young 12 years old? But he hands over five of his tickets, and she tacks up a piece of white paper with a red star pinned in the middle to the back of the booth, loads a plastic rifle with BBs, and passes it to him. Shoot out all the red, she explains. That's how you win. Luke takes aim just like I've seen him do at home with his bow and arrows and his own BB gun and starts shooting. This cheap rifle is locked on automatic though and shoots like a toy AK-47, wasting a lot of the BBs as soon as he pulls the trigger. Ah, I think. So that's the trick. This is exactly why I didn't want to come here. And I'm just about to intercede, to tell the old woman that this is a ripoff and my son wants his tickets back when I changed my mind. 
couple of days have reminded me that life is full of rip-offs. Luke might as well learn that now as later. Better luck next time, cowboy, she says, reaching for the gun. Before I can stop him, Luke tears off five more tickets, holds them out to her, and jams the remainder into his back pocket. She snatches them from his hand with surprising speed. Okay, she drones, we got a shooter here, shooter. A few people drift over. She tacks up another paper target with another red star. And then I watch my middle son spread his slim legs apart a little, steadying himself, and take a few deep breaths. He exhales, holds the rifle up to his cheek, and stands there for what seems like a really long time. Someone in the crowd coughs, and the old woman rolls her eyes and sighs. Come on, Luke, jeez, Owen whispers from behind him, irritated. Luke takes another breath, exhales again, and stands as still as if he were frozen to the spot, even in this July heat, and pulls the trigger. A thin circular line quickly appears around the outside of the red star. Seconds later, the star drops out of the target like a dead duck, flutters, and lands on the ground. All that remains tacked to the back of the boot is a white rectangle with a jagged hole in the center, not one speck of red. Luke figured out the trick all on his own and beat it. You don't start inside the star and try to remove it piece by piece, because there will never be enough ammo for that, no matter how good of a shot you are. No, you can serve your ammunition and make every shot count. The old woman rips the target down, takes a drag on her cigarette, and looks at the paper herself this time, instead of showing it to Luke. Winner, she says, exhaling. Then she yells, winner! at the people passing by. The small crowd that has gathered class politely and a big man in a trucker hat steps up to the booth, holding out his own strip of tickets. The old woman climbs up on a step stool and pulls down a bright green stuffed snake with a white triangle teeth and hands it to Luke. Up close, it's pretty big. He doesn't say anything at all, just grins. Cool, Owen says, grabbing the animal's fuzzy head and looking it in the eye. Wow, Luke, wow, Luke, Will cheers, bouncing around his brother in a circle. Can I hold it, Hong? I want to hold it. Nope, Luke answered, wrapping the snake around the back of his neck and over his shoulders like a yoke. I put my arm around his waist and pulled him to me while we walk away from the booth, pressing my cheek to the top of his blonde head. Luke is a boy filled more with action than talk. He is my introspective son, an old-fashioned boy of aiming and exploring and building campfires and carving wood with tools in a new-fashioned world. I have bonds with his brothers, too, but this is the one I have with him. Acceptance of our outmoded life skills, moon-gazing, gardening, shooting, is something Luke and I have in common. Together, I believe we could have survived the wagon trip north, the American frontier, even the Dust Bowl. That was amazing, I tell him. He looks up at me and grins his happy boy grin. I can't wait to tell Dad, he says. I feel my chest tightening. I bought him his BB gun and his bow and arrows. I showed him how to shoot them, just like my dad showed my brother and me in our backyard when I was about Luke's age. I tore apart a cardboard box, painted a target on it for him, and tacked it up on a couple of hay bales, all why don't you call him and tell him about it when we get home, I force myself to say. I am the one divorcing their father. They're not. 
This seems like an easy concept to grasp until it is you that has to do the grasping. The last of Luke's tickets are sticking out of his back pocket. He still has 10 left. In the excitement of winning, we've forgotten all about them. What do you want to do with those, I ask him, pointing. We are standing in front of the bumper cars. The sound of squeaking rubber and humming electricity and laughter emanates from inside the ride. There's already a line for the next go-round, but it isn't very long. I want to go on these with Owen and Will, he says. The bumper car ride cost three tickets. Paying for his brothers to go on the ride with him will leave him with just one ticket out of his original 20, and you can't go on anything with one ticket. He already knows this, he says, and doesn't care. He just wants to crash cars with his brothers. That is just like him, my kind-hearted, fine-boned little boy, always thinking of everyone else first, the peacemaker who just happens to have really good aim. I'm oblivious to anything else right now except my happy sons and how fun this day has turned out to be despite my initial misgivings. And so the next few moments unfold like the clicks of a viewmaster, the tiny square scenes of mystery until they arrive, one after the other, right in front of my eyes. Just as Luke is climbing the steps toward the bumper cars, a long white arm reaches out from the crowd. The arm snatches the tickets from Luke's hand, and Luke's face collapses in confusion. The body to whom the white arm belongs is running. He is running towards me, and then he is almost to me. This is an arm that never sees the sun, never works in a garden. There is an ornate cross tattooed on the arm and letters, a word, on the knuckles of the big white hand. The white hand that just ripped Luke's tickets out of his small one and is stealing them away. Tickets I bought with the $30 that I can't afford. We can't afford. The knuckle word is spelled A-V-E-D. What is A-V-E-D, I wonder? Some drug gang? Click, 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 click goes the Viewmaster. I see gold necklaces swaying in the V-neck of the thief's basketball jersey. Then I feel more than see that jersey gripped in my own fist. A man's chin is level with my forehead and my eyes meet his shoulders. I am tall, but I have to look up to be face to face with this pale, pimpled skinhead with a scar on his neck and a lip ring. He smells bad, of liquor, something sweet like peppermint schnapps and old sweat. Shit, lady, he shouts, trying to jerk away. He doesn't release the tickets, though. I don't let go of his jersey. My whole hand hurts, or maybe it's just my finger. Give my son back his tickets, I say. Quiet, because I don't want to upset my sons. I don't want to cause a scene that could ruin this good day. My sons are 20 feet away, still in line for the ride, but their eyes aren't on the cars. They're on me. They look scared now, not confused anymore. What the? It was just a joke. The skinhead is trying to jerk away, really, really trying. And he is strong, but not that strong. Give my son back his tickets. My hand really hurts now. Bumper cars are stopped. Strangers are looking at us, then looking away. Nearby, a ride shaped like giant strawberries is still spinning around in its well-ordered circle. Happy music plays. Then this person. This skinny, stinking person looks around, and the first time maybe registers that we are in a crowd. He throws the strip of tickets toward Luke, mutters bitch, and when he lets go, I see that his thumb is part of that word, that knuckle word. There is an S tattooed on it. 
The letters on his thumb and fingers spell out S-A-V-E-D. From what, I wonder, then think, from us, if you're lucky, from me. If I have ever felt this kind of rage before, I don't remember it. We are fine for the rest of this month and most of the next, as long as nothing breaks and nothing needs repair, nothing wears out and needs replacement, no one gets sick or hurt and nothing unforeseen happens. This is something unforeseen. The tickets are on the ground now, about to be stepped on and probably torn and ruined, but they're too far away for me to pick them up. Even if they were close enough, my hands tremble so badly that I couldn't do it anyway. Owen can, though, and he walks over, grabs the tickets off the ground, and hands them back to Luke. My sons stare at me, open mouthed. One minute their mother is talking to them about regional agriculture, the next she's a second away from pressing her green thumbs into a thief's offending eyeballs. I unclench my fists and look down at my hands. The ring finger on my right hand is beginning to swell, and half the nail is torn completely off. The place where it was a few moments ago is white for a second, then blood rushes to the surface and pools. I didn't feel it tear off, and I have an odd thought of wondering where it is. I turn my hand over and see that the nail is stuck whole into the skin of my palm. I was gripping that basketball jersey so tightly I tore out my own fingernail. The gate for the bumper car ride swings open, but my sons are still staring at me. They step aside and let the rest of the people in line go ahead. Luke is holding his tickets with both hands, and the snaky one is still wrapped over his shoulders. I put my right hand behind my back so that they won't see the blood. I nod a couple times and try to give them a smile. Come on, I motion. Go on the ride. They are the last ones through the gate, but finally take their places in the bumper cars, and the operator starts it up. The other riders grin and yelp, but my son's faces are flat and serious. Somewhere behind me, I hear chuckling, then deep laughter. I assume it's sarcastic, hurtful, and whirl around, but this laughter is sincere. Just two old men in khaki pants and straw boater hats, tourists, fudgies, we locals call them, leaning against the snack trailer, bent over and holding their stomachs. Who was going to help? One gasps, his mouth open and a smile wide enough for me to see the gold wiring on his partial. But we seen you had it handled. I had it handled? These men are old. They should know better than to believe everything they see. Because now I understand that I don't have anything handled. Not a blessed thing. The four of us are just one swipe away from losing everything. The farm, the myth of divorce being survivable, the idea that I can protect my sons from everything, from anything. Our whole lives feel scored together as temporarily as those carnival tickets, just waiting to be torn apart. So I'm fine. Um, but the first couple book signings I did for Bootstrapper, a couple people actually bought me shopping bags full of canned goods. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you know you struck a chord when people are bringing you food to your, to your book signings. Um, so this next piece is, is uh, not quite so dark. Um, uh, after Bootstrapper, I, or, or, you know, after I got divorced, I remarried. I've been married now for seven years, happily. And my husband is um, very impressed with his own ancestry. And so that this piece is called uh, The Pilgrim and the Lady. And it has not been published yet, but um, I hope you enjoy listening to it. 
Not all the pilgrims came here for religion, my husband Pete pronounced one evening from his throne, a.k.a. the velour club chair in our living room. Some of them were just trying to make money. Oh, I mumbled from the kitchen with, I have to admit, limited enthusiasm. I'd heard this one before, and I would surely hear it again and again. A happily married couple, Pete and I are living proof that opposites attract. He is an ancestry junkie with well-documented heroic blood pulsing through his veins. I am an adoptee who knows almost nothing about her past. Take John Alden, my beloved continued, tapping two manly fingers on the ridiculously large binder sitting open on his lap. Yes, I agree. Do take him, please, anywhere. Lord, I love my husband, but did you have to make him a Mayflower descendant? Did you have to make his ancestor the comely, the youthful, the strapping historical celebrity Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote poetry about? Okay, I said, banging a wooden spoon into a pan of gruel, I mean dinner. What about him? You know what a cooper is, right? Um, let me think. Maker of barrels to store warm beer, perhaps? He made the barrels to store the beer, my husband bellows. I'm sure he had to sample the wares on the way over. Chuckle, chuckle. And you know what? We wouldn't even be here. America wouldn't even be here if John Alden hadn't been such a great craftsman. The ballast on that logic seemed top-heavy, and yet it was also the part that always got me. Like his famous ancestor before him, my husband is a carpenter. He prefers the term cabinet and he is masterful at it. The same hands that turned the pages of his family tree, the same hands that slipped a pear-shaped diamond ring onto my finger, had also built bird's-eye maple vanities that could have held their own in a museum, and a Victorian-style house is so intricate, his workers had nicknamed one the piano. Pete had an innate talent and knew exactly where it came from. I was a random bundle of cells dropped to earth by aliens. You should research your family tree, my husband suggested. I mean, look at your perfect skin, your apple cheeks. Evidence, he was certain, I descended from royalty. Maybe, I said, thinking scullery maid, laundress, or yard girl. Everyone in modern times can't be kings, queens, or founders of the greatest experiment in democracy ever attempted in the history of the world. Someone, lots of someones, had to be plebeian, and I was probably that. I did not tell John Alden's great-grandson to the 35th power what else I was thinking, which was, on the off chance my forebears were royal and had drifted to the new world, his ancestors and mine hadn't liked each other much. What with the King James harrying the pilgrims out of the land and such, then having the gall to monogram his name all over their separatist Bible. You know your birth mother's name, my husband pressed. And with the mass of data that's out there now, I bet that's all you need. I'd seen the television commercials depicting how easy it was to leave out your family tree, and I had to admit, I'd been tempted to try it. Many years prior, and with my adoptive parents' blessing, I'd searched for and found my birth mother. Our reunion had been strained, and she'd since died. So it wasn't like anyone was out there wagging a finger at me to keep my past a secret. No, I was the one stopping me. I think I was afraid of what I might find. I, I'll think about it, I told him. But then once I said it, I had a hard time thinking about anything else. 
Our children were recently grown and I was not adjusting well to the empty nest. I needed something happy to take my mind off my melancholy. What could be cheerier than finding dead relatives? So one day my husband went to work in his woodshop and I went to work on my computer. I expected this foray into ancestral databases to provide me a welcome distraction. I did not expect to find three maternal ancestors named, no kidding, welcome. Welcome Usri Almond, born 1806, died 1878. His nephew, Welcome Usri Almond, born 1846, died 1973. And yet another nephew, Welcome Usri Wallace, born 1854, died 1930. None of these optimistically named forebears had royal blood. Unless you kind of welcome Wallace's younger daughter, Eugenia, who, her obituary revealed, liked to be called Queenie. My hemoglobin is not titled, I told Pete that night over a dinner fit for commoners. Keep looking, he said, ever confident of my gentility. And so I did. And the very next day, pay dirt. Well, more like pay moors, pay rocky hillsides, pay ancient soil. Because I found Freskin my 70-something times Flemish grandfather, an adventurer so legendary that he needed only the one name, like Bono or Sting. Freshkin helped King David the same crushed rebelling Scottish tribes in the year 1150, married into the royal house of Moray, and was given a title and a castle for his troubles. Said castle had been crumbling into the ancient crust of northern Scotland since 1705, but still, a castle, a bloody castle. There were even photographs of it all over the internet. Neil Pilgrim, I commanded that evening as my husband stepped out of his work truck. I'd met him in the driveway, my own knees dirty from gardening, my scepter an oscillating weeding hoe held proudly aloft. Once we were inside, I opened the drawbridge to my fortress, aka my laptop, and gestured to the photograph. Behold, I commanded, my castle. Even though its mighty granite walls were obviously yielding to history, Duffus Castle was still magnificent. The Scottish government called it one of the finest remaining examples of a Mott and Bailey Castle, essentially one with a courtyard built on a hill and surrounded by a ditch. In its prime, though, Duffus boasted an imposing stone wall, a grand house, and had been fortified against attack by walls 14 feet thick. The royal Duffus name was printed in golden script at the bottom of the photograph. My husband and I stared at it for a long moment, saying nothing. When I looked at Duffus, my imagination took hold, and I heard hoofbeats and trumpets, and felt the rustle of velvet and hand-spun linen. When my husband looked at it, he burst out laughing. Um, he said, trying to stifle, your castle is named Doofus. <laughs> I pulled away, horrified. No, I corrected him. Oh, it's Duffus! But I felt my face flush. It's okay, Doofus, he said, wrapping his mighty arm tightly around my one small waist. You're right, it actually is a really cool looking castle. I leaned my head on his shoulder. That's Lady Doofus to you. <laughs> Hence my foray into genealogy. It's addictive, though if any of you have done it. It's quite addictive. And it's also um, uh, satisfying. So I, I recommend it if you have not. So this is my latest book. I haven't had anything published since 2016, uh, which means I need to get busy. But um, 
The Drummond Girls is a story about my seven best friends and I. We all were either waitresses, bartenders, or regulars at a tavern in Grand Traverse County called Kijios. And we met in 1996. And that year, we decided that one of us who was getting married needed a decent send-off. And we wanted to take her on an island vacation. But we could not afford an island vacation, so we took her to Drummond. <laughs> And the, um, the eight of us have been going every, every year since. Same weekends, same island, same women. Um, so we um, are already planning for this year. We've had to switch the weekend a little bit because when we went up there, when the book came out, there were already people, believe it or not, on Drummond waiting for us. There were other travelers who had read the book and wanted to kind of hang out with us and we sort of go up there to get away so we've shifted the weekend a little bit and now when those other travelers show up we've already left because we were there the weekend before. Um, so I wanted to read to you just a little bit from the Drummond Girls um, and the story, this, the book uh, unfolds chronologically year to year and you would think that if you go to the same 37 mile island for 26 years there wouldn't be much new to discover but there always, always is amazing place. Um, so these are the, this, it's funny to read the end at a reading, but these are the last two and a half pages of the Drummond Girls. It is sometime in the not too far away future, October, and we are racing the dark. In the twilight, an otherworldly glow seems to come from inside the sugar maples, the ones decorating the north shore of Lake Huron. Driving away from home, I felt nothing but anticipation. My sons are grown now and on to their own lives. My husband is happy for the first, for the time at home alone. He can fix the downriggers on his fishing boat and tinker with the oil pan on the snowplow too, without me hovering nearby, offering advice. I have a lot of feelings inside of me for him, and not one of them is mechanical. Have fun, my Marty, is what he exhales into my neck when he hugs me goodbye. I feel every muscle in his arms. It's unseasonably cold, and even through his thick canvas jacket, I feel them. Whatever year this is, we've just crossed the mighty neck. The bridge authority's driver's report was all clear, with visibility estimated at 100 miles plus. We are safely over. There are no other cars on the road, no other headlights, no taillights, no lights at all save the nav screen and its blinking green arrow pointing forever forward. I'm driving, Bev's sitting in the passenger seat, Jill and Andrea are in the back messing with a playlist when, from up ahead, Linda uses Susan's cell phone to call us and impart this detail. As a weather concept, visibility is not an exact science. It is simply an estimate of how far 1,000 candles can be seen when illuminated against an unlit, unlit background. How cool is that, she wants to know. We are not 1,000 candles, we are only eight. Our background is just up ahead and we won't even need igniting. Just like those scarlet and gold maple leaves, we are lit from within. We hurtle toward Drummond, burning inside with love, adventure, shared memories, and life. Linda has ideas. Tomorrow we can take a guided tour out to the fossil ledges, or maybe even Marblehead, the remote and scenic cliffs on the island's northern shore. 
There's a man with a new touring business who will do the driving for us. $60 a person, but probably worth it. Or we could just hike there. Six miles through some pretty wild and dense woods, but also probably worth it. Bev likes the second idea. She's nearly 70 now. Still has her same hiking boots from 1995. But even so, with her buoyant stride, she'll be the first of us to the trailhead. Bears? Nah. She's not worried about bears. She's not worried about anything. A grin takes over her face. Remember that year we danced at the Northwood, she asked? Remember how great that band was? I don't remember, and I glance out her window at the water, watch it pass by at highway speed, and then refocus on the road ahead. We are racing the dark. Beth didn't volunteer or learn to play the piano after she retired, but she did travel. Alaska, New Zealand, Australia, Africa, and next Spain. Sometimes I get to be the one who picks her up from the airport. I get to look into her eyes and see the lively person inside, still so engaged with the world. Often when I'm with her and she's walking me around her garden, telling me about each plant, where she bought it, how much it costs, the environment it prefers, whether or not the deer will eat it, I find the face of the girl I imagined she once was. Alert, curious, happy. I wonder if she ever looks at my face notices a new smile line, a new forehead wrinkle, and sees the girl I'll always be. Just as we clear Detour Hill, the last bit of red sun sinks into the tamaracks. We'll be first in line for the ferry this year because Drummond is waiting and we are racing the dark. Susan calls again. Andrea puts her on speaker. Remember your ferry manners, she says, and then I hear Pam and Linda hooting in the background. Jill throws her head back and laughs out loud. Up, she says. About this time, Belle will ask how many years it's been. Then we'll drive onto the ferry, the island will come into view, and we'll all know the answer. It's been always. It will always be always. It's the first weekend in October, and we are racing the dark.
journal. I'm too much of a I'm too much of a workhorse to keep a journal because a journal is for fun, and to me, writing is is work. And I would be if I kept a journal, I would be going back and revising it. So I don't keep a journal. Um, so I didn't have that to go back to, but I did have a lot of photo albums. I took a lot of pictures of my kids when they were little and of our house and the different things that we did. So I had photo albums to go back to. So pretty much it was divorce papers, photo albums, um, and uh, tax returns that were helpful for, for Bootstrapper. For the Drummond Girls, I'm lucky in that I have seven fact checkers. And believe me, they made their presence known in the fact checking department. But we also, after the, I think the first year we did this, when somebody would say something funny, we would write it down. And Linda is such a budgeter with our trip money. We, we travel with a kitty, so we all put the same amount in. The first year, it was $125. So we each put $125 in. And back in 1996, that bought you a pretty fun weekend on Drummond for four people. Everything included food, lodging, gas, tolls, um, all of it. So she keeps a record of the money. So I could tell you what the price of gas was back in 1996 because she's such a good record keeper. So she handed those, that book over to me. And then my, um, you know, I hadn't originally planned to write about this trip until they, my girlfriends read Bootstrapper and they said, you know, we have a story. We would like it if you would, if you would be interested in writing about our trip. We think that, you know, we would like that. So it wasn't a question of me having to ask them permission. It was a question of them coming to me and saying, would you write the story? We knew you could write crime, but we didn't know you could write like bootstrapper. So now that we do, get busy, was essentially what they said. So I wrote the book. I said, I'll agree on one condition, that you leave me alone to write it. Don't bug me every two weeks. How's the book coming? How's the book coming? I mean, that's just painful for a writer, because a lot of times the answer is not very good until it is. Uh, and so. I wrote the entire book, and then one night we were all getting together to play Euchre, and I gave them all a printed copy, and the cover had already been designed, so it had the cover on it, and it was just spiral bound from a copy shop. And I gave it to them, it was very serious, and I said, okay, this is it, here's your red pens, you're free to mark it up however you want. I've never done that with any other book before. Um, but it was really intimidating. I just wanted them to. I wanted them to love the story as much as I loved it, and I wanted them to feel like they were portrayed um, lovingly, but also accurately. And so I, I said, "Now take two weeks. You know, try and read it all in one sitting if you can. Get a quiet place. You know, be get your mind free." And they looked at me like I had lost my marbles, and they're like, "No, sit down." And Susan, who we call her gamer, because she always has some activity or game for us to do, she said, this is how we're going to do it. We are going to go around the group, around the table, and each person is going to open the book randomly. Now, writers, think about this. This is a book that nobody has ever seen before. Not even your editor. No one. Not even your writer's group. You pass it to the people that you just wrote about. And they say, and we've been drinking. And had to add that in. And pass it around the table and open it randomly and read out loud to the group the very first sentence you see. Uh, that was definitely the toughest review I've ever had in my life. But we laughed and laughed and laughed. And that, that made me know it was over. And I'm so glad they did it that way. Because if I would have let it go two weeks, it would have been torment. But they, um, none of the big issues did they take any, have any qualms with. It was just things like, you know, that was the year that we were in a Bronco, not a blazer. That was the kind of thing that they corrected. 
you know. Um, I think that happened in, you know, such and such a year. Or Bob said to me, you said that I didn't know what my grandpa grew in his garden. I knew exactly what he grew in his garden. So that was the kind of stuff that they, um, they quibbled with and that I changed. But any of the big emotional stuff, they didn't touch. So, and we're all still friends. And we all still go on the trip. So that's a long answer to your question about how do I research. But there are ways. There are ways to look back even at your own life. You'd be surprised how much um, paperwork you keep, which is going to be a problem in the future when everything's digital. Your computer goes down. What was your first book? My first book was um, When Evil Came to Goodheart. It was published in 2008, and it's about a family of six from the Detroit suburbs that was murdered in Goodheart in their summer home in 1968. And it had a lot of compelling, you know, the I used crime to write about other things. Like during the time that the, when the, the Robinson case was going on, the newspapers were all on strike. So there were no newspaper reports about it. And DNA hadn't been uh, discovered yet. So there was none of that. And um, you know, Michigan was starting to be discovered by tourists and by money. And so that was kind of changing our landscape. So there were a lot of social issues surrounding that case that made it interesting to me. And excellent, I, excellent book. Could thank you. Could you tell just briefly the meeting that was held in the past? The meeting that was held in the, oh yeah, you mean after the book came out? Sure, did you go to that? Oh my goodness. So, um, so the book came out a, a month before the 40th anniversary of the crime. So it, it came out in 2008 in June. And the Petoskey Library held, you know, an event sort of like, very much like this. Well, it wasn't a reading, it was more of a panel. And the, um, the prosecutor from 1968 was there. The state police polygraph examiner from 1968 was there. And I was there, and 9 and 10 News was there, and um, an amateur armchair detective who's since become my friend was there. And we all sat on this panel and answered questions from the audience. And this was a mass murder that took place in their home, I mean, right down down the road from them, and many people still remembered it. So um, they had to the fire. The it was so packed, and people were so fascinated, and they wanted answers so badly um, that the fire uh, marshal had to come, and he opened the doors, and he said, "We can't have any more people because you guys are above fire code." And somebody called the fire department. Unbeknownst to a lot of people who are in the audience or on the panel, there are some surviving, even though it was an entire family annihilated, there are some surviving people, the cousins of the Robisons, and they had read the book, and they had asked me, this was very strange for me, but they had asked me to sign copies for their family so that their family would know what happened to other family members, because it always had been such a mystery. And I did that, and then they said, and we want to take you out to like a private dinner so we can talk to you, and please don't, please don't tell anybody in the audience who we are, but we want to come to the event. So the family of this murder family that they had not had a resolution in 40 years was in the audience and heard all of this, but I couldn't say that that's who they, who they were. And they didn't ask any questions, but it was really um, cathartic for them, I think. It was an amazing evening. It was an incredible evening. It sure was. It was remarkable. And the, the knowledge, the, yeah, he was fascinating. And he was very um, not politically correct at all and said exactly what he thought and made, made a terrific speaker. 
yeah, I was really honored actually to be, and the book was kind of the catalyst for all of that. You know, it was a reason for all those people to get together, which is something that books can do. It's the power of books. by um, members of the church where the murder happened because they didn't want that story. They didn't want that to besmirch their church. Interestingly enough, that same community, um, I was finding out that a whole bunch of my books, were, a whole bunch of that title were selling down in Florida. If you're an author, you can go on something called Amazon Author Central, and you can see where in the country people are buying their books from Amazon. It's a really cool little thing. So when, Is when Isidore's Secret came out, I saw that a whole, like a lot, like thousands of books were being sold in Florida. And I couldn't figure that out. And later I found out it was the, the same community of people who were picketing my bookstore sales. That's where they winter. <laughs> <laughs> so I found that kind of amusing. So that wasn't so bad. If anything, I think it improved sales. Um, with the Gaylord book, I got to be pretty close to um, the Moore Brothers' mom, Esther. I don't even want to say close. She's not the kind of person. She's not the kind of person you befriend, but she trusted me, put it that way. And I had a lot of interaction with her. Um, the brothers were very suspicious of me at, the, at initially because they didn't know what you know. They'd already their lives had been ruined by this case. They were falsely accused, falsely convicted, and falsely imprisoned. Now a writer's going to come along and tell their story again. They've since they don't feel like that anymore. Um, they've since been um, pretty favorable to the book. They buy extra copies and give it to people, so I think that they must be proud of it. Um, so I, I didn't get any blowback from Esther or from the Moore brothers. Emotionally, I got to be pretty good friends with um, one of the other one of the other men. And two months after the book, and he was the most helpful in writing the book. Two months after the book came out, he died, and that was hard for me. Um, but I had two people who are mentioned in the book as being involved in illegal activities, not the murder. They weren't identified as a murder suspect, but they were identified as drug dealers, and I've had to get PPOs out against both of them. And I probably would not do another event at the Gaylord Library because I was, I don't know, if I mean, you wouldn't call it assaulted, but one of those men approached me and said, I took his wife, I took his life, I took his business, and I ruined his life. And he wanted to see what I looked like. So there is, I mean, there can be repercussions from writing this that kind of book. And it's still worth it. <laughs> and I would do it again. I think, you know, if I don't if I don't write a book as detailed or good as that, I will not be surprised because that book, um, probably the most proud of that book. A lot of people helped me do it too. Well, when um, when the Good Heart book came out, um, it was the very first true crime book that the University of Michigan Press had ever published, and they were kind of surprised at how well it sold. And I think the only reason they published it is because the editor's husband was an avid true crime reader. So she took the proposal home, and he read it. And he said, "Oh yeah, you got to publish this. I'd read this book." 
And so that's kind of how I got the first, you know, the first chance. Then they said to me, hey, is there anything else? Actually, the editor said, are there any other dead bodies up there in northern Michigan that you would like to write about? And I had already, I realized how much I loved the process of the research. I loved trying to put something so illogical into somewhat of a logical narrative or do or try to. And so I knew I wanted to do it again and I already started looking for another, another crime. I like history, so I like the older things. Um, and so that's how I found out about Sister Yanina in Cedar. She was also closer to home, so she, you know, she was right around the corner. I thought all the all the research ended up being down at the University of Notre Dame, though, so that didn't turn out to be quite as smart as I was hoping. And then with uh, Wicked takes the witness stand, that was two attorneys approaching me, and I had initially thought that I would just say no because. As writers, you know, the, the impetus for a story or for a book comes from in here. You know, it doesn't come from out there or somebody's telling you, hey, you should write a book about this or I've got this great idea. Don't you love that one? I've got 10,000 ideas. Could you take some of them away? Uh, so two attorneys had come to me and said, we worked on a case that was interesting. We think it would make a good book. Are you, are you interested? And I went to their, their office to say no, but the only reason I went is because one of them was a retired Grand Traverse County prosecutor. And I thought, hey, A, if my kid, I'm still a single parent, if my kids ever get in trouble, it pays to know the prosecutor. <laughs> and B, if I need sources for information, he would be a good conduit for sources for information. But it turned out to be such an interesting case. That was the wicked case. And so I said, yeah, okay, I'll be a writer. Six years later, I finally had a book. I think I could pass the criminal section of the Michigan Bar exam. Oh, <laughs> so many different people involved. Oh, oh. What well, it, you know, the takeaway for me is that if you get called to jury duty, do not assume that that person in the defendant's chair is guilty. Listen with an open mind. This was five men who met at their arraignment, and they supposedly planned a murder together. They met each other at their arraignment, and every jury convicted them. People just like us, so if anybody, that would be the takeaway, I would hope. None of them were guilty. They were all innocent. It ruined them. One, one had a business, you know, that went south. One had a fiance, that went south. Um, another one, the one that I got, Don Eastand, who was just my butt and we were really close. He um, was diabetic. He had type 1 diabetes and he was a bodybuilder. I mean, he was, and I saw pictures of him. He looked like Adonis before he went into prison. Well, once he got into prison, it was all starchy food and no exercise. And so he came out in his 50s and he had three heart attacks and eventually died. He died at 56. He was innocent. All, his crime was to work two weeks in the butcher shop where they said this drug deal went down. That was his only crime. He was a, I mean, he was this upstanding, married, his wife was pregnant with twins, he was working two jobs to make extra money for the babies. I mean, he was just a terrific person. Probably he died of a drug overdose. He probably was not, he was in a fight because he had some bruising, but he had eight fresh needle marks on his arms, and he was an coke, avid cocaine user. So he probably died of a combination of um, cocaine overdose and exposure. But cocaine is a drug that flushes out of your system really quickly, 
so by the time they did any tests during the autopsy, there wasn't much cocaine left or they couldn't find it. They didn't, you know, they did see the needle marks, but who knows, and they made a really big deal of the bruising. So, um, yeah, that one was, I would come down, when the men were still in prison, in my mind, and I was working on the book, I would come down to make dinner like this, you know, down the stairs, and my husband would look at me and he goes, oh, the men are still in prison, aren't they? <laughs> Once they were out, and I was like, oh, I'm going to, that crooked jaw, you know, I'd come down, and he said, oh, you're after somebody now, aren't you? <laughs> so that book stayed with me for a long time. So th thank you for asking about the true crime, though, because that's kind of my, you know, first love. You can't go on, you know, you can't continue to write about your own life work. So I want to get back to that. Anybody else have questions for you? So thank you for bringing me to the UP. I've really enjoyed it here. I want to come back when I'm not working. I want to come back and just be a nice I heard about that. <laughs> Is it really? Sue St. Marie's? I just actually turned mine in before I came up here. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. And I'm easily available online. It's just martylink.com. You can email me through my website, and I answer all my email. And one of you will come up to me secretly and tell me about some murder or unsolved case or something like that that I should write about. And I don't mind that either. So thanks again.